Isaiah 42 is where we find ourselves tonight. Be sure to wish Bud a happy birthday as he hands you a Bible. We've got a lot to cover tonight. A lot of really cool things to cover tonight, so I hope it's okay if we dive right in. I did want to say thank you for praying. Um, I know that you were lifting up the teaching over the weekend in Montana, and it was a lot of teaching. It was Friday night, it was two Saturday morning, one Saturday night, then driving two and a half hours back up to Glacier to do two Sunday mornings, um, but man, the Lord blessed it so, so much. And I know, I know, I know, I know it's because of your prayer. So thank you. Isaiah 42, prophecy. Isaiah speaking, writing, reaching out to an Israel in exile. The first half of the book, first half-ish, first 39 chapters were written to Judah of Isaiah's day. And because it was of Isaiah's day, I had to be, we had to be kind of fastidious about saying Judah, the southern kingdom, because Israel, the northern kingdom, still existed at the time that Isaiah began to prophesy. The early chapters, in fact, Israel was a threat to the southern kingdom, a threat to Judah. But in God's eyes, though they were politically separated, that was an act of rebellion. In God's eyes, Israel, his people Israel, never stopped being his people, one people. So from the time of exile forward, we see Isaiah refer to Israel as Israel, because from that time forward, they were never separated again. You can find people that want to make hay out of the 12 or the 10 lost tribes of Israel, the northern tribes that scattered, never to be seen or heard from again. That's an idea that's relatively easy to disprove. Um, we did it last summer when we were going through the, the past, present, future study of Israel, um, but it's easy to track down. My point is in the latter half of the book, Isaiah's writing and prophesying and encouraging a future Israel, the descendants from Judah, who are carried into captivity from 607 B.C. through 586 B.C., all of which to say I get to be a lot less fastidious about saying Judah. It's okay now to say Israel. Most scholars agree Isaiah completed his prophecies, completed this book by 681 B.C. or so. Um, so that means he's writing to people who would be alive, alive and living in Babylon, a hundred years and more after his death. This is his audience here in chapter 42 and subsequent chapters. This is the group that he's comforting, encouraging, the group to whom he's making promises. But he's also writing about events and to people, in some cases much, much further in the future. And that's going to be the case, at least part of our time together tonight. Isaiah 42. Let's dive in. Behold, we read, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. We've barely started and it's already some chewy meat, isn't it? But mama, that's where the fun is. Who is this servant? Jesus, I heard, because that's what you've been trained to say. When in doubt, say Jesus. And I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong, but we don't get to just say it. We don't get to just say Jesus. We actually have to establish it, demonstrate it, prove it. Because, especially here in Isaiah, most of your Jewish friends, your observant Jewish friends, those who read the Bible and care about what it says, are going to read verses 1 to 4, actually verses 1 to 7, and they're going to say, that's Israel. The servant Isaiah's speaking of here, that's Israel. And in each of the four servant songs we find in this latter part of Isaiah, the others are in chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 52, observant Jews, not Messianic Jews, understand, but observant Jews, worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are going to look at all four, and they're going to say of all four, that's Israel. Of course that's Israel. It has to be Israel. Which is part of why Israel had such a hard time recognizing Jesus in the flesh. Because they didn't fully recognize Jesus in God's word. Israel didn't recognize her Messiah because they looked past those verses that describe Messiah the way we just read, as a servant. And they especially, Israel, looked past the verses, like in Isaiah 53, that describe Jesus as a suffering servant. But why are we sure we're right and they're wrong? Want to have some fun? Behold my servant, the servant uh, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Behold, look, this is someone important to me, someone special to me, someone in whom my soul delights, someone in whom I'm well pleased. That echoes into the New Testament, doesn't it? Places like Mark 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism. We hear the voice of the Father, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. My elect one. Does that show up anywhere? It does. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Behold, there's that behold again, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. I have put my spirit upon him. We could go back to the baptism of Jesus, but we've already used that. Matthew 3.16 says that very clearly. I've put my spirit upon him. But so far, we're not convincing any of our Jewish friends. We're, we're convincing ourselves, and that's good. That's not nothing. But if we want to convince someone who doesn't see the New Testament as authoritative, it would be really helpful if right about now we could go to the Old Testament. 
I've put my spirit upon him. Guess what? Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And that is a passage that any observant Jew will acknowledge is messianic. We could also, since we're having fun, we could also go to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Again, our Jewish friends would say, yes, yay and amen, that's messianic. And you and I would say, right, and Jesus read that at his commissioning, at the beginning of his public ministry, after his baptism, after the time in the wilderness, he went into the synagogue, opened the scroll of Isaiah, and that's part of what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Pretty compelling stuff, but just for fun, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Let's, let's scratch at it a little bit more. What was Jesus' ministry? In his first coming, wasn't his ministry to help us avoid justice? Everything we've been reading about in Romans? In his first coming, his ministry was justification. In his second coming, his ministry will be to dispense justice. Okay, I said one more, but let's keep going because that's just verse 1. Verses 2 to 4, there are even more statements that characterize the conduct of this servant. Statements which line up with what we know about Jesus. We read, let's get back to where we read it. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. There are those who will tell you this is Jesus who was not a street evangelist. This is Jesus who never ran down the street saying, wait, wait, I want to tell you about me. This is Jesus who merely allowed people who wanted to hear from him come to him. I, 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 I can see that. But the Hebrew, when it, when, it, when it speaks of he will not raise his voice, that's suggestive of raising your voice as one barking orders. And I think what, what Isaiah, what the Holy Spirit through Isaiah is disclaiming here is he won't be a Nazi. He won't say, Mach Schnell, and order people about. He will offer. He will extend a hand of grace. He will not compel. He will not dictate. Both of them, both understandings, both interpretations fit with Jesus. The second one seems to accord a little bit more with the Hebrew. Jesus who spoke gentle words of peace. And the gentleness of Christ comes across in verse 3 as well. He will not break a bruised reed. If you've ever been out paddling or fishing and accidentally you know, gone into a bed of reeds, you snap one across and it, and it folds like a cheap suit, right? It goes from standing straight up to, to hanging by a thread. 
He's not going to snap it off, is the visual, even though he easily could. It would be nothing. It would be trivial. And those who had a heart to control dictators and tyrants would do that. Dictators and tyrants do what? They trample the weak. That's how they build their empire. That's how they build their kingdom. They stand on top of the poor and the needy and the helpless. Jesus seeks out the weak, but for an entirely different purpose. Jesus seeks out the least, the last, and the lost. Not to dominate them, but to strengthen them. Same idea when it says he won't snuff out a smoldering wick, a smoking flax. He won't snuff out a candle that's about to go out. Those who have almost last, lost hope, he's, he's not going to push them over the edge. He's not going to blow out what little light and love is left in them. Instead, he's going to speak to that feeble hope. He's going to breathe on it and try to encourage it, try to nurture it, try to rekindle it, try to nurse it along and bring it back. He's going to encourage those who have all but lost hope. And how many times do we see Jesus do exactly that? The, 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 Jesus speaking to the paralytic in Matthew 9.2. What does he say? Be of good cheer. Another translation. Be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven you. We read in the New King James again and again, be of good cheer. Other translations, have courage or be encouraged. I'm not here to snuff you out. I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to help you along. Verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged. We sing the song, we will not faint. We will not grow weary. Strength will rise as we wait on, upon the Lord. We will not faint. We won't grow weary. Why? Because he doesn't. We don't grow faint or weary because Jesus doesn't. And we know that. We know that we draw our strength from him. Same thing, he will not uh, be discouraged. can also translate that crushed. Paul says, pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. Why is Paul so sure that that's true of us? Because again, it's true of Jesus the one who, lives, who, who leads us, the one who gives us life, the one who is not only an example for us, but strength for us. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. We've talked about that. And the coastlands, the distant lands, the outermost parts, shall wait for his law. Now, this is one of those verses that will reveal someone's eschatology. The post-millennialist, the one who believes that Jesus will come once the gospel has come to the entire world and, and peace has come about as a result of the preaching of the gospel, says, yeah, the gospel is going to go to the entire world slowly, painfully, through opposition, and then Jesus returns. The premillennialist, that's you and me, who believes that Jesus returns at the beginning of the thousand-year kingdom, says yes, and it's at that time, at the time of Christ's return, that the gospel, the law, and the gospel go forth to the entire world. 
four verses in, seems like Jesus to me. I actually have a commentary on my shelf. I picked it up just to see what it would say. I knew it would be interesting. Conservative Christian commentary that, that, that looks at these four verses and says the identity of this servant is mysteriously unclear. That's a quote. The identity of this servant is mysteriously unclear, but we do not need to find answers to all our questions. That particular commentator is amillennial, doesn't believe that there is a literal thousand-year reign. And if you don't believe in a literal kingdom ushered in by a literal Jesus returning, that's going to affect how you read lots and lots of Isaiah. Lots and lots of prophecy in general. But, but I, I just don't see how you get around seeing Jesus here. Especially since Matthew's gospel says it's Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 15, Jesus withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and is in his name Gentiles will trust." Quoting from the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek several hundred years before Jesus is born, quoting from the Septuagint, but still very clearly the passage we just read. Patrick, you could have just gone there from the beginning and saved us all of that back and forth. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. <laughs> so having introduced the servant in verses 1 through 4, verse 5 God speaks to the servant. Thus says God the Lord, and when we see that lowercase, that small, I'm sorry, that small uppercase Lord, that's Y-H-W-H, that's the name Yahweh, and we've said before, in Isaiah especially, when God invokes that name, he's reminding Israel of his covenants, of his promises. Thus says God, the promise keeper, the covenant maker and covenant keeper, the one who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Let's hit pause. Through the power of God, creator God, almighty God, I'm going to take you by the hand I'm going to give for you a covenant, verse 6. I, the Lord, who have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Go ahead and back up. God says, I made the covenant, I'm going to keep the covenant. I have the power to keep the covenant, and I am going to be the means by which the covenant is kept. Read that phrase, give for you a covenant. There's layers to that, aren't there? I'm going to make it, 
I'm the maker of it, but I'm also the substance of it. It puts us in mind of Abraham speaking to Isaac. The Lord will give himself a sacrifice. The new covenant that's in view here, by the way, the new covenant that Jesus introduces at the Last Supper, not really new when Jesus introduces it. It had been spoken of, we usually go to, to Jeremiah 31, the covenant in Messiah's blood. But we see it here in Isaiah. We also see it in Ezekiel 16. By the time Jesus introduces it, it should have been well-established fact in the hearts of the apostles, in the hearts of the disciples, in the hearts of Israel. They should have been expecting it, anticipating it, excited about it. Instead, I think more than anything, they were really confused by it. Still, verse 6, light to the Gentiles. That's straightforward. Jesus is the light of the world. But that phrase, light to the Gentiles specifically, we read in the Gospels and we read in the book of Acts. Verse 7, still God commissioning his son. Um, sorry, the second part of, of, of verse 7. To open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is one of the verses that gives us the idea we talked about in our Life of Christ study a few years ago, that healing blindness would be a signature miracle of Messiah. As Jesus healed the blind, he looked pretty expectantly at the scribes and Pharisees. Guys, do you see what's happening? Are you paying attention? Are you watching this? The blind guy's watching this. Know why? He can see now. It's never happened before. That should tell you something. Now, we know that, that primarily what's in view in this verse is spiritual blindness, spiritual bondage. How do we know? Because Jesus, so far as we know, didn't help anybody break out of prison. There were no physical deliverances from prison. So, so the primary reading here we understand to be spiritual. Jesus came to lift Israel's spiritual blindness, but she wasn't willing. But the physical healing, healing of the physical blindness, was intended to call attention to the greater healing that he came to make possible. Israel should have known. Verse 8, the tone shifts a little bit. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, going back to the amillennialists, post-millennialists, especially amillennialists, if the servant we're talking about here is not Messiah, if the servant is not Jesus, the message in verse 8 and 9 would be God speaking to the servant, saying... Stay in your lane. Understand who you are. Maintain appropriate deference to who I am. Don't confuse our roles. I'm the king, your servant to the king. And again, my amillennialist commentary treats those verses exactly that way. God cautioning the servant. Don't exceed the scope of your role. Because, because if it's not Messiah, you have to read it that way. But we've already established, at least I'm satisfied it's Jesus. 
And, and if you agree, if you see that this, this, if you see this servant is Jesus and Jesus is the servant, then we read verses 8 and 9, 180 degrees different, don't we? Because then God is saying of this servant, he's saying about this Messiah, this servant is God. It's 180 degrees different. It's not, keep in mind, you're not God. It's worship him. He is God. I will give my glory to no other. I won't share my praise, my worship with anyone. But you can worship this servant because he's the second person of the Godhead. How can we be sure? We're sure because we have the benefit of the New Testament. But God says, hey, to the people that he's writing to, for whom Isaiah is the latest, greatest word in prophecy, he says, here's how you can know. Here's why you don't have to guess. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The former things have come to pass. I've spoken prophecy before, and I think here it's specifically through Isaiah. That's a little bit of an assumption, but, I, but God has, by the time Isaiah is prophesying this prophecy, God has spoken and fulfilled prophecy through Isaiah, hasn't he? Back in chapter 7, speaking to Ahaz, Isaiah said, hey, I'm going to be married and with child. Isaiah, and, and, and Isaiah wasn't married at that time, but he would come to be married. What we, what we regard as a short-term fulfillment of the longer-term fulfillment, the longer-term prophecy of the virgin birth. But that's already happened by the time he's speaking this prophecy. More recently, remember that whole thing about the Assyrians and Sennacherib and how God, through me, God through Isaiah promised to turn back the Assyrians at Jerusalem's gates? That was fulfilled. And very shortly, the prophecies he's begun speaking about Cyrus, the prophecies he began articulating in the last chapter, soon enough you'll see those fulfilled. Those prophecies all came true, are coming true. That's how you know the rest of Isaiah's prophecies will come true, including the ones he's speaking forth here about the servant. It's, it's God authenticating the longer-term prophecy through the short-term fulfillment. Hey, the servant's going to come. He's going to open the eyes of the blind to the true and living God. He's going to set Israel free from her spiritual bondage if you let him. You can count on that. Because everything I've said so far has come to pass. What's the proper response to such majestic words? This is huge. This is epic. How do we respond? How does anyone respond? Worship. And that's what God calls for in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Cater inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Let's pause. What do we notice about this chorus of praise? 
It's worldwide in scope, isn't it? The ends of the earth, those who are at sea, the sailors at sea. It even includes those historically hostile to Israel. Cater? You and I would say that's the Bedouins. Either way, the descendants of Ishmael. Selah? That's the Edomites. Israel's enemies are praising Israel's God. What does that say to us? What does that suggest to us? We're looking at the second coming. Because Israel doesn't embrace God's servant. Israel doesn't recognize her Messiah. Israel does hand Jesus over to be crucified at his first coming. So her salvation and the global celebration that follows get deferred. The worship has to wait. And verse 13 certainly confirms our suspicion. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. That's the opposite of what we read earlier, right? This is, this is a stark contrast to verses 1 and 4. The servant, the, the suffering servant, the meek and mild servant has become a mighty warrior. The one who doesn't raise his voice in the streets is shouting commands. And this is why Jewish commentators and others have a hard time seeing Messiah in both. Because the character, the personality, seems so different. How can it be the same guy? Answer, two comings. Jesus came first as suffering servant, returns as conquering king, as mighty warrior. We need to sing mighty warrior, guys. Can we bring that song back in? has nothing to do with the message. Just <laughs> sang it in Calvary Flathead on Sunday, and I really liked it. Further prophecy of return, verse 14. I've held my peace a long time. I've been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. Now, here's a place where... where even commentators who are tracking with us will disagree. You can find some who say, the, the, the held my peace, the silence, perhaps is a gap between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Is, is, was there an interval where Isaiah didn't prophesy? You know, where Did he have his own period of silence like the period between the Old Testament prophets and, and, and the coming of Jesus? Maybe. Maybe there was a gap where, where Isaiah stopped speaking for the Lord. Personally, and I might be wrong, personally what I think is in view here, I've held my peace a long time, is the time between the first and second coming. Because we've already, we, we, we just switched from first coming to second coming, so that's already in view. And I read that line, I'll cry like a woman in labor, and I can't help but be reminded of the tribulation. Because we see that idiom used in reference to the tribulation. So you can, I, I don't think that it makes a big difference. People disagree about that. That's how I read it. But the second coming is clearly in view in verse 15. I'll lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I'll make the rivers coastlands. I'll dry up the pools. I said the second coming. I meant the tribulation. This, this sounds very much like the, the, the 70th week of Daniel. 
But on the other side of that, what do we see? I'll bring the blind by a way they did not know. I'll lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them in crooked places straight. What is the purpose of the tribulation? A major purpose, arguably the central purpose, is to chastise Israel to repentance. Judging the nations for their unbelief, yeah, that's a secondary goal, but that really finds its fruition, its consummation at the sheep and goats judgment. The tribulation is to wake Israel up. And on the other side of the tribulation, verse 15, I'll bring the blind by a way they did not know. Verse 16, lead them in paths they have not known. I'll make darkness light, crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them because God the covenant keeper has promised that he would not forsake them. Judge them, yes. Punish them, absolutely. Destroy them, I will not, God has said. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Still God speaking. Still God speaking to Israel. They shall uh, hear, uh, hear you deaf and look you blind that you might see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Now this is where things get confusing. Because God is indulging in some wordplay here. And what's funny, what's ironic, is that it's typically Jewish wordplay. It's, it's Hebrew fun with words, and Jews miss it. Because we went from verse 17, they shall be turned back, greatly ashamed, those who trust in carved images, who say to molded images, you are our gods. I'm going to judge those who reject me. I will judge those who prefer idols to me. But then all of a sudden, he starts talking about his servant being blind, his messenger being deaf. Who is as blind as the Lord's servant? Hang on. I thought that the servant was the one who gives sight to the blind. Servant here, verses 18 and 19, is clearly what? Israel. Yeah. 18 and 19 are clearly referring to Israel in her spiritual blindness who have not recognized Jesus, who have not allowed him to open their eyes, who turn back to their idols. So wait a minute. Then who's the servant in the beginning of the chapter? And this is where people struggle. The earlier servant is a different entity. The earlier servant, as we said, is Messiah. This servant, verses 18 and 19, is Messiah. How does that make sense? Because Israel was called to serve God, yes? Israel was called to declare God's name to the nations, to be God's witnesses. They served idols instead and necessitated a Messiah, a deliverer, a coming king. Verse 20 Seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears he does not hear. Because you were the way you were, because you are the way you are, 
This is why God's people are at where you're at, God says. Because despite warning, despite prophet after prophet, you preferred your idols to me. That's why you were driven out. That's why you were carried into exile. That's why we're having this conversation. Verse 21 the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they're hidden in prison houses for their prey, and no one delivers for plunder, and no one says, restore. God laid down the rules of engagement centuries ago. He made it crystal clear, super clear, could not have been more clear to Moses. Obedience will mean blessing. Disobedience will mean judgment. God is reminding them, you are where you are because you disobeyed. You brought this on yourselves. This is what you asked for. Verse 23, Who among you will give an ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? I read that as foreshadowing. I read that as God saying, and it's going to be true again. It's true to the people in the 6th century before Christ to whom Isaiah is primarily writing, but I read verse 23 as foreshadowing, and it's going to happen again. Israel is going to need to be driven into exile again. And for the same reasons. Israel never returned to idolatry in the sense of idols made of stone and wood. Babylonian exile successfully beat that out of them. But Israel did return to idolatry, did embrace her spiritual blindness, did refuse to recognize Jesus, and so demanded further judgment once more at God's hand. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel for the, to, to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned? God is saying, yeah, and if you're looking for someone to blame, it's me. You're going to get all mad at the Romans and the, the Ottoman Empire, and you're going to get mad at the Nazis and the Iranians and the Neo-Babylonians when they come. They're tools. God is emphasizing. I will use empires as I see fit. I will use the Romans. I will use other empires like I use the Assyrians, like I use the Babylonians, like I use the Medes and the Persians. Empires are tools to do my will, to carry out my judgment, my judgment against those who refuse to walk in my ways. Verse 25, for they would not walk in his ways. Sorry, still verse 24, nor were they obedient to his law, therefore... Verse 25, he's poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. One day, finally, that will change. And we'll read about that in the next chapter. Time's gotten away from us. So rather than full-on application tonight, just a, a closing thought before we close in praise. Leave you with this, and, and it's something that I talked to the, to the guys at the retreat this weekend about, something that I, that I invited them to grapple with. We're forgiven. 
We are on the other side of all of the judgment that's being described there. We're forgiven in Christ Jesus. We're enjoying what Israel will enjoy, could be enjoying, but chose not to because they, they rejected her Messiah. We're enjoying that forgiveness today. We are justified just as if we've never sinned. God has taken our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. To us, God said on the cross, it is finished. And there are implications of that that are marvelous and that sometimes we don't fully embrace. We don't need to be ashamed. In fact, we should not be ashamed. Jesus died for our guilt and our shame. We don't need to hide. We don't need to conceal our sin, compensate for our sin, atone for our sin. We don't have to prove our righteousness. We are, this moment, tonight, perfect in God's eyes. But we were reminded tonight, God hasn't changed. We were reminded tonight that the God we worship is the God we see here in Isaiah, holy, righteous, perfect, jealous. And our actions please him or displease him. Everything we do either worships him or mocks him. There is no neutral. There is no in-between. Everything we do pleases or displeases God, worships him or mocks him. Our challenge as believers is to embrace both of those truths simultaneously. If we focus only on forgiveness and neglect righteousness, our lives don't worship him. And we're not truly serving him. If we embrace his forgiveness and mock his righteousness, that's where we cross over into saved soul, wasted life territory. We're like prodigal sons and daughters who climb out of the mud, are embraced by the Father, say thanks for the meal, great ring, love the fatted calf, and go back to the mud. On the other hand, on the other hand, if we focus on righteousness and ignore forgiveness, then we're always proving ourselves. We're always striving and never abiding. We're working for victory that we never quite attain. Why? Because we're supposed to be fighting from victory, not for victory. And in essence, we're denying the finished work on the, uh, on the cross. We hear Jesus say to Talistai, and we say, is not. And so we live lives that are subtraction by addition. Jesus plus anything is nothing. We have to embrace both. We have to embrace both. We have to embrace the enormity of our forgiveness without losing sight of the reality of God's righteousness. Something to think about as, as you head home. But Jesus, we can't do that without you. Either one of those thoughts, those two ideas separately, are beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination. The two of them together, side by side, no. No, the human mind cannot comprehend.
but you are the spirit of wisdom and understanding. It says so in Isaiah 11. And so we call upon your spirit. Help us lay hold of these awesome, intimidating truths. Help us appropriate them to our heart. Help us live them out and walk in them. For your name's sake, for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray.